0: Allow me to introduce our first speaker, Rafael Gutardo at the Fred Hutchinson's Cancer Research Center. He is the scientific director of the Translational Data Science Integrated Research Center. Rafael, please join us on stage. Audience, please join me in welcoming Rafael Gutardo. Thank you so much, Michelle, for the introduction. So I believe we can cure cancer in our lifetime. And machine learning could play a very very big role in that. So before we get started, let me ask you a question. How many of you know someone who's been affected by cancer? Raise your hand. Look around you. It's pretty amazing. It's actually frightening. So according to statistics, one in three people will eventually be diagnosed with cancer, one in three. What if we could change these statistics? I believe that we can change it. And by we, I mean us, the Faraj, a leader in cancer research. But I also mean we, technologists, in this room and beyond. So let me tell you a little bit about the Faraj before we get started. So we're a cancer center. We were founded about 40 years ago. We are actually named after a baseball uh, player, Fred Hutchinson, who unfortunately died of cancer. Today, we have over 3,000 people who work fearlessly to prevent, treat, and ultimately cure cancer, HIV, and related diseases. We've had three Nobel laureates, including Dr. Thomas, pictured here, who pioneered bone marrow transplant, a form of immunotherapy. We're located in Seattle, right next to Amazon, AWS, but many other biotech and tech industry, nonprofits, academia, the University of Washington. So from marrow from transplantation to artificial intelligence, Seattle is a global epicenter of breakthrough ideas. We've got people who are extremely talented in data science machine learning, and other advanced technologies right in our backyard. And we've started to work with them to try to cure cancer. So let me get back to curing cancer. Here's a visual of a cancer cell being attacked by multiple T cells. So it turns out that the immune system is actually the best weapon we have against cancer. However, it doesn't work all the time. Cancer cells can be very clever. They are very good at hiding from immune surveillance. So at Fred Hutch, we've been working very hard to try to come up with new therapies called immunotherapies that are basically leveraging the immune system, try to boost, retrain, or even re-engineer someone's immune system to fight cancer cells. And we're seeing amazing results. In fact, we can already talk about cure in certain patients and certain cancer. Unfortunately, it doesn't work all the time. Some people do not respond. Others will initially respond, but then they will relapse. And so we're trying to understand why. Is that because the cancers are different? Or maybe our immune systems are different? In fact, did you know that our immune systems are highly diverse? For example, we each have around a billion unique T cells in our body. T cells are part of the immune system. They are very important cells that try to kill abnormal cells like cancer cells or cells that are infected by... Uh, viruses or bacteria and things like that and some of that diversity can be linked to basically the proteins that these cells express so if you think of the protein as a little engine um, the cell as a little engine the proteins are actually all the little parts that make it work and my T cells can be very different from yours it turns out that sometimes T cells that are very important for example the ones that will actually respond to immunotherapy can be extremely rare Potentially one in 100,000 T cells. So, we need technology to not only look at T cell diversity, meaning how, you know, what sort of uh, proteins do a cell express, but also be able to do that in a high throughput fashion so that we can collect lots of cells and potentially go after these very rare cells that might be very important. Today, we have such a technology. It's called cytometry, it's actually a single cell technology, meaning that we can actually take you know, let's say a blood sample with millions of cells, pass them through a machine, and the machine's gonna quantify how much expression do we have for 40 to 50 proteins. It's very fast, we can actually do that in a matter of minutes. One sample, millions of cells, 40 to 50 proteins. For those of you who think in terms of arrays or matrices, you can think of it as per patient, per sample, a large matrix with millions of rows, these are your cells, and 40 to 50 proteins, these are sort of your variables. Now, if you look at this picture, so this is the instrument that you can see on the right-hand side. On the left, this is actually the analyst that analyzes this data. And I kid you not, the the standard way to analyze this data is basically to stare at a screen and try to draw circles around sort of cells that look similar to one another. So I'll show you that on the next plot. So this is an example. Let's say we're measuring three proteins in all of our millions of cells. So we have... CD3, CD8, and then CD4. CD3 is a very important protein. It's actually how we define a T cell. So T cells are uh, positive for CD3. So on the plot here, you can basically see the protein expression of CD3 versus CD8 on the y-axis. Each dot is a single cell, and the call actually tells you when there's lots of cells that are basically overplotting. So it's the density, so there's more cells there. So if you look at basically everything that's sort of circled there, These are your CD3 positive because they're high for CD3. And in this case, the analyst actually draws sort of an ellipse around the CD3 positive cells to define T cells and then took these cells and looked at the other two dimensions that we measured looking at the the expression of CD4 versus CD8. And here we can define the CD4 positive and and CD8 negative T cells and the CD8 positive, CD4 negative T cells. These are important. They are CD8. They are called the killer T cells. These are the cells that actually kill let's say cancer cells, the CD4s that help T cells, they help the immune system by producing a lot of effective molecules that actually stimulate immune responses. So the point I'm trying to make here is that this is actually the standard way we analyze data in the lab. It's manual, it's time consuming, it's sort of subjective, it's not data driven. More importantly, you might sort of say, well, it's fine, because here we can kind of see these populations, so we can draw these circles around and we understand where they are. But we're looking at only three proteins here. So if you consider three proteins, you might sort of say, okay, I can actually do it because there's eight different combinations. If you pick two markers or two proteins, you can plot them, you have basically three scatter plots. But these grows exponentially. If you have 10 proteins, potentially you have to look at thousands of scatter plots. If you have 20, you have millions of combinations. If you have 30, you have billions of combinations. So not only it doesn't scale, What's going to happen is that oftentimes the way these people will explore the data and try to look for interesting populations of cells or T-cells will be very limited and biased. And so I can guarantee you that in any of these data sets, there's going to be information left on the table. And that information might actually be very important in predicting who's going to respond to immunotherapy. So because this is a machine learning conference, I thought I would sort of walk you through what we're trying to do to solve that problem. And then I'll show you applications of it. So I have a few cartoons that will try to illustrate that. So let's say we're looking at a lot of T cells. These T cells, because they are T cells, they express CD3. I told you that's how we define a T cell. So we have CD3 on the surface of these cells. And then if we were to measure CD3 by that technology called cytometry, we would basically sort of get a distribution that's all high or all positive for that protein. And you see a peak because it's not a perfect measurement there's some variation from cell to cell, so we will express more or less of that protein. Now, if we measure other proteins, it will sort of look like this, because maybe for CD8, some cells will be positive for that protein, some will be negative, so that distribution will be bimodal. You get two peaks. And you don't get exact zero, because again, this is an imperfect measurement, and you get measurement error or background noise, and so you get that sort of negative peak, low intensity, high intensity, positive. So if we were to look at a T cell, let's say, that expressed all of these five proteins, they will all be on the right-hand side. So their measurement should be above that threshold positive. Now if we look at one that's negative for CD28, it would fall on the other side, right? So you kind of get the idea. By looking at where these cells fall in terms of measured protein um, expression, you can sort of guess what the phenotype is. So you, we can actually explore the space by building sort of binary trees and deciding on what a cell is depending on the expression of certain proteins. So we can start with CD3. You can see they're all positive. Then we can look at the other marker, depending on where they fall. If it's on the right, these are CD8 positive, and therefore I call them CD8 positive. If it's on the left, CD8 negative, call them CD8 negative. And then we can do that for other markers. We can look at another one called PD1 and then do the same for the CDA positive. We split according to where they fall, and then we call them negative or positive, and so on and so forth. These are actually cartoons, meaning that these are not real density that we actually get from the data. The density we observe are typically a little bit more noisy, so we have to make decisions as to where is the negative, where is the positive peak, so we have to use coding density estimation for doing that, and then making decision as to whether there's actually one peak or two peak, or even more than that. Sometimes we see um, distributions that have three peaks, and this is actually very important. Sometimes there's sort of a no expression, a low expression, which we call dim expression, or a bright expression. And that, those actually have a lot of importance from a biological point of view. And these, we can make the decision based on the data. This is actually fully data-driven. We can decide on whether we see one, two, three, or four peaks. Now the order kind of matters. So here yeah, I started with CD3, then looked at CD8, and then PD1, but we could have done you know CD3, PD1, CD8. There's a lot of different combinations. So we actually looked at all these combinations. So we actually built what we call an annotation forest. We're doing a forest of trees. We're gonna look at all the different combinations and the order we can look at. This is important for a couple of reasons. One, because the order might matter, and so we wanna know that. But more importantly, because there's actually structure that might not be apparent right away, but if you sort of look further down in a tree, once you've conditioned on things, you might sort of see some structure. So here's an example. Let's say I'm again looking at some T cells and I'm measuring another protein and I want to know whether my cells express or do not express these. But the distribution looks like this. So there's no clear separation between what's positive or what's negative. Now, if I were to look at maybe CD8 first, once I remove the CD8 negative cells and I just look at the CD8 positive, maybe I see structure. The idea there is that maybe there's lots of cells that don't actually express a protein, and so you should actually use that for deciding what protein, what's positive or negative. So this is very helpful for doing that. Now I've told you we looked at all the trees, we built a forest, but I lied a little bit. We actually do that, but we only look at combinations of four proteins, because if we're to look at more than four, Again, it grows exponentially, we can't really do that. Even a computer cannot sort of cycle through billions of different things. So we have to be a little bit more clever. So we stop at four just for deciding what are the thresholds and what do we call positive, negative. Then we're still gonna build the giant forest with the very long trees where we're gonna look at all the different combinations. But we're not gonna do that for all the trees. We're just gonna randomly sample large number of trees, let's say a thousand trees, we're going to look at all these combinations. And here what I'm showing you is very similar to classification trees, for those of you who know, and when we sample these trees, it's similar to boosting or bagging. And the idea there is that we want to look at all these trees, and what's going to happen is that when we build all these trees, you're going to get different paths that lead you to maybe the, cell, um, the same T-cell subset or the same phenotype. For example, here, you know that Um, The cells will be basically blue and then yellow and then sort of dark blue and pink and green and orange. And you can see I have many ways to arrive at that combination of proteins. Maybe some of these ways give me better populations. And the way we define better is basically if you think of the data in a a sort of large, high-dimensional space, you can think of spheres. We want something that's more spherical, that looks a little bit more like a population we trust. So basically we do all these trees and then we're only gonna collect the populations that are unique and that we think are relevant. So we're kind of doing variable selection and we're looking at the quality of these populations. And this is important again. So these led um, us to build an algorithm that we call FAST for fully annotated, um, um, annotated uh, shape constraints trees for looking at these um, combinations of proteins for defining populations. What's important here is that it is an interpretable machine learning. So we basically build it by knowing what the experiment is, what the data look like, what it means in terms of the biology. What that means is that at the end, we actually get a phenotype or a label for the populations of interest that tells you exactly what these cells are. For example, they will tell you, here's a population of cells, of T cells. These are CD3 positive, CD4 negative, CD8 positive, PD1D. And that's very important because if you're a biologist, you want to know what these cells are. It's also important because if we actually analyze data where we're gonna take a blood sample, guess what? We don't just analyze a single blood sample. Typically, we're gonna have multiple blood samples from a patient over time, or maybe from multiple patients across a clinical trial. So we need to be able to compare these data. And if you think about this problem as a clustering problem, we're trying to identify sort of populations of cells, you might sort of run it per sample, but you're never really gonna know what these are. And so if you have a population and then you wanna compare it to maybe after treatment, you don't know what those are. So you don't know which one corresponds to which because here we have a label we can do that. And this is a big advantage compared to state-of-the-art algorithms. So one of the thing that we had to work with is how do we scale? I told you that we're doing all these sort of um, exhaustive partitioning, we're doing all these trees and building these forests, and that's pretty computationally intensive. So we had to think a lot about how do we scale? How do we analyze large clinical trial data sets? Because we're gonna have millions of cells, hundreds to thousands of samples that we're gonna be analyzing. And so we basically use AWS Batch using tools such as Nextflow and Docker for basically um, trying to um, parallelize some of these computation because we can do it on a per sample basis so we can basically um, scatter all the computation, gather the results, uh, compute what we need, and then scatter again and and gather again. So this is really a nice way for, for doing the computation. Okay, so let me get back to the science. Why is this important? So here is basically, we've been working on a cancer type called miracle cell carcinoma. And we have a world expert at the FRADUCH we've been working with, Paul Niem, who exclusively work on this cancer. So this is a very aggressive skin cancer. It's actually twice as likely to metastasize as melanoma. And up until recently, with the advance in uh, immunotherapy, there was basically no treatment for it. So basically, the survival rate um, for after chemotherapy after three years was only 10%. But now we have new drugs. And with immunotherapy, so a drug called pembrolizumab, we're already seeing amazing results. So this is a patient that had these cancer and we're seeing the pre-treatment. So you can see there's a lesion that's basically circled in black. And after treatment, it's completely gone. All you can see is a little bit of scaring. What's amazing, it took only three weeks and it's one dose. Basically, this treatment is actually boosting your immune system. All it's doing is basically reactivating these T cells, and they go about finding the cancer cells and kill the cancer cells. Amazing, amazing results. But guess what? It doesn't work in everybody. And even, even among people who respond, some will relapse. In fact, this patient was in complete remission for three years and eventually relapsed. So if you look, actually, at the FDA announcement when the drug was released, There was some statistics in there. The response rate was between 50 and 60%. The complete response rate was only about 25%. So if you think about curing cancer, this is great because we have a drug now that's approved for treating Merkel cell, but it's not anywhere near we want it to be. So the question we're asking is that if you think about, let's say we're taking four people, and only one of these uh, out of these four will have a complete response, what's different about these patients? What can we do to learn that will improve immunotherapies, that will help us make the new immunotherapy that eventually will lead us to 100% response rate? So that's kind of the idea here. So being at the Fred Arch again, we had the opportunity to work with the folks who were involved in the clinical trial that actually led to the approval of that drug. And by the way, this is a drug that led to the uh, two, um, 2018 Nobel Prize in Medicine because this was such an important discovery for cancer treatment. So we, um, we had the opportunity to basically have access to some of the data that were collected through the clinical trial. Basically, we had 27 subjects, 18 of which responded to therapy, and they had collected these sort of T cell data using the cytometry uh, platform. And so we were really interested in using a new approach to try to reanalyze this data, looking at, you know, maybe there's some flavors of T cells that may be sort of correlated with clinical response. And we went to our collaborator and we said, you know, we want to work with you, we'd love to reanalyze this data. And they said, this is amazing, we really want to work with you, but they said, you know, just to let you know, there's no signal in this data, we've looked at it. So we went ahead anyway and we reanalyzed this data. We actually identify between 200 and 300 different distinct T cell populations in these patients. And then for each of these population, we compared basically the frequency of these T cells between the responders and the non-responders. And I should say that these are actually data prior to to receiving the drug. So this is prior to immunotherapy. So this is basically looking at the state of the immune system before they receive the drug. And among these 200 populations, we had two that were strongly different between the responders and non-responders. And so we were really quite positive when we saw that because we identified something that discriminated between these responders and non-responders. And then what the algorithm, tells us, remember, not only it, it gives you population, but it will tell you what the cells are. And these are the labels that you can see. So for those of you who are not really biologists, basically it's saying the first population, by the way, these are box blood looking at the frequency. So the y-axis, the frequency of these T cells in the blood, broken down by responder light blue and non-responder dark blue. So what you see is that the responder have more of these T cells. So the one who responds to the drug have more of these T cells before receiving the drug. On the left-hand side, I'm gonna read this. It says that these are CD8 positive, CD3 positive. So CD3 positive, they're T cells. They're CD8 positive, meaning they're killer T cells. And they express PD-1. And PD-1 is actually what the drug is targeting. So PD-1, you can think of it as sort of an on-off switch on these T cells. When PD-1 is expressed, the cell is off. It can't really act. When when PD-1 is not expressed, the cell is activated and it can kill cancer cells. And cancer cells are actually very good at turning that switch off so that the T cells are not going to attack them. By blocking that switch, we basically prevent the cancer cell from manipulating the switch and we're basically releasing the break so that the T cell can attack the cancer cells. And so what we're finding is, guess what? If you have more of these T cells to begin with before you receive treatment, and we give you treatment that actually acts on these T cells, then you're responding better. Makes a lot of sense, because you had those, the drug acting on these cells, and you're responding better. So, and on the right hand side, is basically the same phenotype, but these are the helper T cells that are also important because they stimulate the immune response. So at this point, you might sort of ask, but why did they miss that information? Because that's kind of known biology. They should have looked at this, and they did, but they never looked at that combination. So PD-1 alone, so just looking at these T cells that express PD-1 is not enough. You need to look at PD-1 expression with CD28, which is another very important molecule, and HLA-DR, which means that they are activated. So they've never looked at that combination. And so by using an algorithm that knew nothing about the drug, that knew nothing about treatment, we drilled down to something that was actually very important from the point of view of the biology. And one thing that we know about these cancers is that if you get a tumor biopsy, and if you look at what's in the tumor, actually the frequency of T cells that express PD-1 there in the tumor is actually a predictor of response. So, that we know from the tumor, but we've never seen that from measuring it in the blood, presumably because it's actually pretty hard to measure because these are extremely rare and any method's going to miss them, but machine learning picked that up. And our data actually correlates with what's measuring in the tumor. So, we believe that this is true because it actually recapitulates the gold standard, which is measured in the tumor. But measuring things in the tumor is actually very hard. Typically, it's a lot easier to get a blood sample than to look at blood. And in fact, for some cancer tapes, we don't even get tumor biopsies, so we can redo that in the tumor. So now being sort of a computational scientist, we say this is great, but what we love to do is validation. Can we get another data set where maybe we can validate that signature and see if this is real? Do we really see this sort of strong predictor among other maybe clinical trials? And so we're actually doing that validation internally, looking at the exact same court, generating more data. But you know, because this is science, this is academia, there's a lot of things that are being published, we went ahead and looked for papers that looked at similar studies. And we found one that looked at actually the exact same drug in melanoma, which is different skin cancer, but it's still a skin cancer. And so we figured that maybe there's something common there. We could look at these data. And also, the data were available, which is not always the case, but I think it really shows the power of open data in this case. We're able to look at this paper, go into the data, reanalyze the data, because they had used a very similar technology, not exactly the same, but thankfully for us, they had the exact same markers that we had in our sort of um, cytometry data set, so we can actually extract the same population. And we did, and guess what? It correlated. The exact same phenotype also predicted response to anti-PD-1 therapy in melanoma. So what are we gonna do with this information? So what if we could move, you know, I told you our goal is not to get 25 to 50% response rate, is really to get to 100%. So the first thing we can do is, we know the patients who are more likely to respond to therapy now, so we can probably um, come up with a good biomarker, maybe um, sort of a diagnostic biomarker that will allow us to maybe target the drug to the right patients. Why do you wanna do that? Because these patients, you know, they're basically, they have a a timeline and they're counting for their life. And so if we can sort of give them the right therapy from the get-go and avoid giving them a drug that's not gonna work, that potentially has a lot of side effects, that's something we wanna do. We don't wanna give somebody a drug that's not gonna work. So we can do that. And basically we can increase the response rate by targeting the drug to the right patient population. But the other thing we're very interested in um, doing is not only doing that, but maybe can we learn from this and come up with a new drug, a combination of drug, that will maybe enhance what we're seeing, maybe, for, for example, modulate the immune system so that we can increase the frequency of our sort of P one positive T cells to begin with so that when we give the drug, boom, it works. So we do think there's ways we can actually manipulate the immune system or potentially re-engineer the cells to uh, come up with new strategies. So that's really what we're after. And going back to the story I told you earlier, so, you know, at the Fred Hodge, we pioneered bone marrow transplantation. Did we do that overnight? No, it took a lot of time. Basically, it was a lot of, uh, you know, trial and failures. And we, um, meaning Dr. Thomas, um, ran a lot of different clinical trials in trying to understand how does that work? When you do, you know, when you do a bone marrow transplant, what's the right way to do it? To begin with, at first, we did not really understand that you know, you had to match the patient, right? Because there's sort of a genetic component that if you don't really match the right genetic, then you might sort of reject or you might not have a good engraftment of that bone marrow transplant. So this was very important, and we learned that from data that were generated from these clinical trials. The other thing that we learned through this is that at first we thought that when somebody has cancer, what we're gonna do is that we're gonna give them a bone marrow transplant so that we're gonna basically get rid of all all the cancer cells and replace them with healthy cells. It turns out that's not really how it works. That's partly how it works. But when you get a transplant, what happens is that the donor also has some very healthy T cells. And guess what? These T cells help killing cancer cells. So they basically help keep the cancer in check. They get rid of all the residual disease that the patient has. And from the, with this therapy, we actually went from basically 10% response rate initially to 50%. And here we're really talking about cures, because these patients, they fail chemotherapy, they're getting a bone marrow transplant, and in many cases, they're going to live normal life after that, or close to normal. And this is really amazing, and that's a curative therapy. So at FedH we're now thinking about how can we do that with immunotherapy. And we're very lucky to have something that's called the Bezos Family Immunotherapy Clinic, where We have a great facility where we're seeing patients, we're giving them the best in class drugs, the new clinical trials, also products that are not commercialized. What this means is that we have access to a lot of samples that oftentimes are eager to participate in research. And we have built the best way to collect samples and generate massive data sets from the patient that we're seeing. And from that, we are currently thinking about building the largest database that we can of immunotherapy data sets that are generated from the patients that were treating at the clinic there. And our goal is then to use machine learning and AI to extract new insight that will will move us closer to that 100% response rate and to our goal of curing cancer. So the future of cancer research has just started. I invite all of you to visit this webpage There's many ways you can participate and you can be part of this revolution. Thank you very much.